So Money Episode 70, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarari. This is Sunday, March 22nd. Ask Farnoosh. And uh, I want to just say Happy New Year to all my Persian peeps out there. Yesterday was our Persian New Year, but I'm going to celebrate it again today. It's a weekend celebration. Happy Spring. And uh, looking forward to answering all of your questions that have been streaming in this week. Uh, Just as a reminder to those of you who are joining us for the first time to ask me a question, it's really simple. Just hop on to SoMoneyPodcast.com and click on Ask Farnoosh and Ask Away, whether you have a question about your personal finances, uh, your career, the guests that we've had, guests that you'd like to see, ask away. I am all ears and there is no wrong question. Let's start with Michael. Michael, thanks for writing in. He says, I have a question that impacts the pension option decision, that is pension options with survivor benefits, that I will have to make shortly. I have a 30-year fixed premium life insurance policy that does not have cash surrender value. It covers me at the fixed annual premium, which is $750 until age 77, and the premiums thereafter would increase dramatically. My wife and I are both pension eligible. I'm 62 and she's 57, with my pension being much greater. The difference between the maximum pension that I can select and one with a 75% survivor benefit is $2,000 annually. Question, does it make sense for me to take a reduced pension when my passing would provide my wife with $250,000 tax-free? Her annual pension would be likely in the range of $15,000 Even though I can collect reduced Social Security at this time, my intention at this time is to hold off until age 66. So I hope that question didn't uh, put some of you in a tizzy. I know there were a lot of technical references there from fixed annual premium to uh, pension option decision. And so I hope we didn't lose anyone out there. I'm going to try to simplify this for you, Michael, and for all of our listeners. And really starting with what I thought was the scariest part of what you just told me. If you do not take the reduced pension, um, your wife would be left with very little, with only $15,000 a year. It would pay for, you know, maybe food and gas. Uh, But then, you know, in your senior years, in your elder years, you have this big wild card called health costs. And while Medicare and Medicaid can do their part in many ways, In other ways, it is critical that you have some kind of cushion, some kind of savings to help you pay for unknown medical costs that could arise that insurance is not going to cover. And not only that, but, you know, $15,000 a year is not much. You're going to need money left to live your life and, uh, you know, visit grandkids and go on trips and um, buy organic, you know, Brussels sprouts, whatever it is that you want to do. $15,000 a year is not going to cut it. So what worries me most of what you just said is that your wife's annual pension would only be $15,000 a year, a year. So taking a reduced pension, while that shaves about $2,000 annually, that means your wife can end up with a quarter of a million dollars tax-free. That's amazing. That's something that I think you should strive to do. 
remember that women on average do have a longer life expectancy than men. She's already younger than you too. So she's going to live uh, hopefully a, a long, healthy life. And that money is going to be cr absolutely critical for her. And I also do commend you for delaying social security. I know that you said that you can collect reduced social security right now, but if you can hold off until at least 66, if not later, because of course, every year that you delay social security until you reach age 70, the more your payout will be. So if you can actually hold out even longer than 66, you'll have more in uh, social security payout. So that is my answer. Thank you so much for your question and for writing it so articulately. And uh, I appreciate that. And hopefully listeners, you learned a lot from that as well. Jessica says, hey, Farnoosh, I love your podcast and listen to it daily. I recently inherited a fair amount of money and I'm not sure what to do with it. I'm going to a two-year graduate program this year with a full scholarship. And with this money, I have enough to cover my living expenses, an emergency fund, and then some. I have no debt. However, even though it is money I will definitely be using in the short term, I hate the idea of all of that money earning just 1% and missing out on potential returns. What should I do? Well, Jessica, because you said that you definitely need this money in the short term, and I guess short term perhaps is five years or less, I wouldn't gamble this money. I wouldn't be throwing this into the stock market uh, with the intention of then taking it out to pay for your goals in the next five years. I mean, if you want to put it in the stock market to grow over the next 25, 30, 35 years with the intention of retiring with this money, that's a whole other thing. What it sounds like you want to do is put this money somewhere aggressively, take it out in five years or less time and use that to pay for your goals. Well, the truth of the matter is that the best place to put your money for short-term needs is in a liquid account that is FDIC insured and it's not sexy. It's not going to get you 10% annual return. It's probably not even going to get you 1% annual return, but the money is accessible and that's what you need most. So I would say if that is your goal to use this money in the next five years or less to buy a home, start a business, go on a trip around the world, whatever you want to do, keep it in a liquid account in an FDIC insured bank, period. Lillian. Lillian writes in, she says, hi, Farnoosh, I have a question about whole life insurance. I've been speaking with a financial advisor, a friend who sells whole life policies. I'm trying to weigh the pros and cons of purchasing a plan that would cost me approximately $200 a month, which would total $38,400 invested and around $160,000 total vest if I wait until 65 to touch the money. This is something that I can afford and I like the discipline of the monthly payment. Strictly from an investment perspective, what do you think about this money? What do you think about this being the conservative portion of my portfolio and investing my 401k more aggressively? I'm 24. You're 24 years old, Lillian, and your friend is trying to convince you to buy whole life insurance. I don't like this at all. I, I trust your friend is your friend, but I wonder if she's a little or he's a little compromised here trying to sell you something that, frankly, you don't need. You're 24. You didn't tell me whether you're married with kids, but I assume you're single. If you're single and you're young, you don't need life insurance. I mean, I assume you have no dependents. You have no kids. No one's financially tied to you. You get life insurance when you have someone who is dependent on you financially. So that if, if you go, if you, if something happens to you, you pass away unexpectedly, this money will help support them through 
a period of time, whether it's through college or indefinitely. So you're 24, you don't need life insurance and you don't want to get whole life insurance. There's two types of insurance, right? There's whole, which is also known as permanent, and then there's term. Most people, once they are at a stage in life where they are considering insurance because they do, again, have those dependents that they want to take care of in the event of an emergency, they're fine purchasing term life insurance. It provides basic coverage for a limited number of years, a term, and it expires after that term, whether it's 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, from the day you buy it and you begin paying into it. And for most people, term is the way to go. It's more affordable. For example, if you are you know, in your early 20s, you're healthy, you're taking out a policy starting now, and for the next 30 years, you're looking at you know, maybe $100, $150 a year. Pretty pretty inexpensive. You told me that whole life insurance policy is that is $200 a month. So that's like $2,400 a year. And so that brings me to whole insurance. Whole insurance is designed to be in place for your entire lifetime and it has a guaranteed death benefit. It also comes with a partial cash value, like you mentioned, that you can borrow against at any time. There is a little bit more flexibility, which could be attractive to some people who want an additional way to protect their finances down the road. But as you pointed out, it's a lot more expensive. It's about six to eight times the price of term. And so that becomes really difficult for a lot of policyholders paying those premiums every single month. And I will just throw out one stat, which is that one study found that 20% of whole life insurance policies get canceled in the first three years. Yeah, and 40% get canceled within the first 10 years because people can't afford the premiums. So I would caution against getting life insurance at all at this stage in your life. I don't think you need it if you don't have anyone that's financially tied to you that you're responsible for uh, paying for. And when it comes time for you to decide between term and whole, I would look closer at term. It's more affordable and it is more precise as far as what you probably need. You want to take care of your kids until they finish college. Well, then get a 15-year policy. You get a 20-year policy. Boom, done. So I know you wanted me to kind of analyze this from a conservative or versus like aggressive perspective, but I'm just going to go right to basics and say you probably don't need this. And I would question why your friend is pitching this to you. Um, it's just not something that you need. Kelly writes in, she says, Hi Farnoosh, being almost 25 and discovering the impact I can have with my personal finances, I appreciate your wisdom and advice. Well, thank you, Kelly, for tuning in. She says, I've been fortunate enough to have financially savvy parents who have helped me with my financial education. I have a good, well-paying job and I'm well off. Soon I will receive access to my trust, but I'm not sure what to do with the money. Since I have been financially fit without it, plan on keeping the money separate. I will definitely invest some of it in the stock market, but what else can I do? Angel investing, real estate? So Kelly, wow, you're in a really great, you're in a so money situation, aren't you? <laughs> You've got good parents who've been uh, helping you, uh, you know, really set up a strong foundation for you financially. It sounds like you haven't taken advantage of the generosity that your parents have provided you, of the generous, generous financial life that your parents have provided you. So you get an A for that. Now, you're asking what should you do with this money? Angel invest, real estate. So I would highly recommend, if you haven't already, to listen to my interview with Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss was on the show last week, last Thursday. And as we know, as you may know, Tim is a multi 
best-selling author started with four hour work week then it was four hour uh, chef then four hour body he gave a a very eloquent and i thought very accurate and correct and helpful way to describe how one should invest their money and he started with saying that the purpose of investing is to improve your quality of life it's not to achieve a, a, a reasonable or aggressive rate of return, but the ultimate objective of investing is allocating your resources to improve your quality of life. So he talks about how for him, he started out investing in individual stocks. And while he had a pretty good run with that, it was something that really for him emotionally was not healthy. He would get too nervous about the ups and downs of the market. He would read something on the cover of the Wall Street Journal and his stomach would drop because he was worried about his his investment in certain stocks. And so it was just a stomach turning thing for him. And he decided to get out of that, you know, and, and, and stop kind of that day trading mentality. And so what he instead does now is... Um, he angel invests. He's had a lot of success in angel investing with Uber and Evernote, Twitter, Facebook, a lot of startup companies. For him, investing at this level with companies, he calls it a binary decision um, where he does his homework, he does a lot of due diligence, he makes an investment, and um, or he doesn't, and then he lives with that decision until there's an exit or a failure, basically. And so um, he really defines good investing as something that improves your quality of life. And I think that is that is profound and that um, your investment is not just an investment of capital, but it's also an investment of your time and it's investment of your attention. If you think that you want to go into real estate investing, you mentioned that as a possibility, but the idea of becoming a landlord is just too stressful for you. You can't handle it. Um, I, I don't think I could do that personally. Then, then, then you have your answer. That's not for you. But if you enjoy the stock market, you, you appreciate that there's volatility, then maybe you want to look into investing in the stock market. Uh, perhaps you want to invest in businesses like, like Tim does. So without saying exactly what you should do, I think you want to take a step back and think about what are, what areas of investing are you most comfortable with? As, as Tim said, you know, just like with sports, we're not all good at every sport. You know, there are some sports that we like, some sports that we don't like, some that we're good at, some that we're horrible at. And investing is kind of the same thing. You got to find what you're comfortable with and what you're good at and go with that. Annie writes in, she says, hi, Farnoosh. I'm a successful fitness professional who became a mom six months ago. I'm loving it. I've gone from working seven days a week as the owner of a spin studio to focusing on solopreneurship so I can spend more time with my daughter. All right. She says, I'm about to launch a blog called The Fit Millionaire. Love the title. She says it highlights the similarities between success in fitness and in finance and strategies to achieve both. I would love your advice as to how I can turn my blog into a revenue stream in the most efficient manner possible. Thank you. Love the podcast. Well, thanks, Annie. This is a fantastic idea. I love The Fit Millionaire. I love the correlation that you're uh, going to explore between fitness and finance and all the strategies to achieve both. As you know, I've interviewed a lot of health gurus on So Money from Dave Asprey. Um, James Altucher also talks a lot about the correlation between staying healthy and physical health. So I think you're onto something. Uh, I will say, though, as somebody who is 
working to monetize her digital platform, me, yours truly, Farnoosh, I know that it's a it's a slow journey. It's not something that happens successfully overnight for people. And those who claim it does, they're lying. Um, yeah, you can go and sign up for Google Ads, and but that'll make your site look really ugly. And you know, it's just what kind of experience do you want? You have to ask, you know, yourself. What kind of experience do you want for your users? Putting your users first, really making them the center of your attention and, and making sure that you don't do anything that compromises their experience. If they're coming to you for rich content, for one-of-a-kind insights, and uh, they won't want to be you know, attacked by different ads, maybe the ad platform is not the way to go. And I, I see more and more online entrepreneurs kind of abandon the banner ad movement because it's just kind of makes their site ugly and it's it's the first thing that people see is an ad. It's kind of, uh, you know, again, depending on your audience, it could not be the right way to go. So other ways to monetize. I think before we talk about monetization, let's take a step back and talk about what, how to make your site attractive, how to get people to convert on your site so that you can directly sell to them and make money that way. And so the first thing I would say is you want to focus on consistently giving your audience amazing value, you know, whether it's value in the rich content that you give, maybe you want to do a podcast, perhaps you uh, are doing videos, maybe you write an ebook that you give for free to your subscribers, you're sending them really rich and thought-provoking and carefully written emails once or twice a week. But the point is that you're engaging constantly and in a variety of ways. And it's content that they are not able to get anywhere else. And you give this to them for free. And for a while, you give this to them for free. And so that you build their trust. You build them coming back to you. You want to get them to subscribe, capture those emails. Really, really important to do that. So when you land on your home site, on your homepage, that within 10 seconds, there's a pop-up that asks them for their email or that you have a really compelling gift. In fact, this has to be part of it. You have to give a really compelling gift to get them to sign up, whether it's a free three-day video series on how to improve your finances through your health, or it's an ebook that you put together of your 10 top secrets for fiscal health that, you know, how to basically, you know, get healthy and financially fit at the same time, whatever it is. I mean, I'm not the expert here. You are. So think about what kind of premium content you can give to your subscribers to get them to give you your, give you their email and then really nurture that, that group, that online group that you have, that community doing this for however long, whether it's like a year, you know, getting content partners is also important so that while you're putting your stuff on your site, Get that content out there. Find other websites, other media sites, other bloggers who would like to share your content. And at the end of that, you know, you have a link back to your site mentioning the free gift. So really um, getting your community established, getting that uh, consistent engagement established, really, really important. Um, This isn't, again, a fast action monetization plan, but it is the right way to go about it, I think, is to really be thoughtful about how you're presenting to this audience. Then, as I said, get those content partners where you can share your content and direct people back to your site. Building that email list is very critical. If uh, if ultimately you want to monetize the site by going direct to your audience and selling them some really great things. Um, And then eventually, maybe, I don't know how long, maybe it's a year, depending on how quickly you can grow that list, developing a scalable product that you can sell virtually to this new list, whether it's 
a coaching platform where they go on and they can get all different kinds of you know tutorials, video tutorials, um, content that is going to basically help them to go from good to great with their finances or their health or both. Again, this is your genius, so I'm gonna l- l- like leave that with you. But to really think about you know a product that's like either a subscription-based product or a one-time fee where or it's a coaching business that you can provide over this site, and maybe a combination of these things. But this is how the modern day solopreneur is making money online. It's not necessarily through selling, you know, a Budweiser ad on the bottom, you know, half of their website or the, or the above the fold part of their website. Then of course there's affiliate fees. Once you become really, really robust, you've got a following, people are responding to you, they're converting. Then you might be able to make yourself a really great affiliate partner for other other sites and other solopreneurs. So saying like, hey, uh, you know, nutrition site blogger, um, if you got a product, I'd be happy to introduce it to my, my, my audience. And then whatever number of people from my audience come to you to buy your product, I can make, you know, 30% or 40%. And this is totally normal these days. So just to get you thinking, a great book to read is called Launch. Um, I read this myself. It's called Launch, and um, the author's name is, let me just look it up because I forgot. It's called Launch um, by Jeff Walker. And also, I had my guest Robert Curry on the show. His book, Feed a Starving Crowd, also great. So there's a lot of different books you can read on this as well. They're pretty quick to read, just talking about how to build your tribe, how to get your customers to convert, how to ultimately come up with that product, how to market that product efficiently. So there's a lot that goes into this. And you asked for something that was efficient. And I think this is efficient because it's sustainable and it's really going about it in a thoughtful way. It's not just slapping an ad on your website, which you can definitely do too at some point, but I think that it would be more empowering to develop a site and a community where you're the sheriff, you know, and you can decide what you want to sell, what you don't want to sell, and go forward with that to your audience and, and go direct to market, you know, as opposed to waiting for an advertiser to come around and give you money to put um, an ad on your site. So that's my two cents, and I realize now we are just about wrapping up here. So thanks, everyone, for your questions. Uh, this has been an Ask for new edition of So Money. Remember to ask a question. Just hop on to somoneypodcast.com. Click on Ask Farnoosh, and I will try to answer it either the following weekend or the weekend after. And one other thing before we go. If you would like a free 15-minute money session with me, uh, I choose one person a week to give this free session to. And that one person comes from the iTunes review list. So if you go onto iTunes and you leave a review um, and you let me know, email me farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com, I will pick a reviewer once a week and that reviewer gets a free 15-minute money one-on-one with yours truly. Thanks everyone again for tuning in. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend. See you back here tomorrow. In the meantime, I hope your day is so money.